Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We are joined by former F1 driver Luciano Berti to talk about his time at Ferrari and two monster shunts. This podcast was recorded before it had emerged that Maurizio Rubani had left his post as Ferrari team principal. This means we don't discuss his departure or expectations for the new era of Ferrari under the leadership of Mattia Bonotto. But even so, our guest still offers some fascinating insight into what he believes went wrong with Ferrari last year, and therefore what might need to be done better in 2019, during the section where we talk about Ferrari's recent struggles. We hope you enjoy it. A great many drivers pass through Formula One without their stories being properly told, and our special guest on this podcast is a man who during his relatively short Grand Prix career raced for two teams and worked alongside Michael Schumacher during the glory days of, of Ferrari. So this also gives him a, a unique insight into goings on in Formula One today. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and that driver is Luciano Borti. I hope that's a reasonably close pronunciation. I've been trying to practice it. We always say Bertie in, uh, in England, not quite right. You raced for Jaguar and Prost uh, and also racks up a huge amount of miles in testing for Ferrari from 2002 to early 2004, I think it was. It's been a while since you've been in international racing circles, but very active in Brazil and also uh, 
a television uh, personality on Formula One. So, so tell us what, just in general, what are what are you up to these days? Well, even listening to you, I was remembering um, what I've been already, yeah, in Formula One, and then I remember, yeah, I was a Formula One driver, yeah, because uh, it's kind of a long time ago already, but it's not that far at the same time. So, they were good days. That's the main thing, yeah. I remember in a good way. Um, answering your question, I've been back to Brazil in the end of 2004 after I left uh, Ferrari as a test driver and I started to compete in stock car racing which is a good series, it's the best series that we have in Brazil, touring car racing of course um, and I've done that until 2016 so it has been almost two years now, no two years that I stopped and I've been working with uh, TV Global since 2000, end of 2004. So has been already 13 years, a long time. So I've been enjoying quite a lot what I'm, what I'm doing because I, uh, let's say, I, I, I'm still a racing driver. For example, today I was driving a good car, uh, a Renault RS01, which is a good racing car. And I, I still have the speed, I still have the... Uh, um, the desire to, to, to go fast and so on. But uh, at the same time, I don't uh, miss racing in a bad way. Yeah, I, I know some drivers that when they stopped driving, they kind of um, lose their... Um, not their life, but I mean their, their spirit, their happiness. So I don't have that, lucky enough. And I've been enjoying quite a lot to work on TV because... I, I feel motivated to uh, follow Formula One, to know what's going on and so on. So has been has been quite good since then. Well, we'll talk a bit about your career and also about your views on, on current Formula One. We'll, we'll jump around a bit. But first, I must introduce uh, my second guest, uh, a man who has, I think you've been contributing to autosport for longer than, than I've been alive. You're one of our, our longest serving international contributors and also a familiar face on television uh, in Brazil uh, through your, your motorsport uh, commentary work, Lito Cavalcanti. Yes, uh, glad to be here. Uh, yes, I've been a lot of sport Brazilian correspondent since 1979. It was, I remember. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, a long time. Uh, I remember quite clearly the first time, my first story for Autosport was when Jody Schechter drove for Ferrari for the first time when he had his the first taste of the team, of the Italian team. It was such an emotion for me because uh, for a long time, I had been a hungry reader of autosport, of motorsport news. And at those days, uh, England was the place to be for a starting race driver or whatever, and also for uh, would-be professional journalists. So it's been quite a long and lovely time. Yeah, you're one of the many... Slightly unsung uh, correspondents who have uh, been a been a big part of autosport over the years. So thank you for your thank you for your work, and it's great to have you on a on a podcast for the first time. Well, let's come back to you, Luciano. Perhaps even though you did race in Formula One, uh, probably your most significant impact was as a test driver with Ferrari. So you know Ferrari very very well. What's the experience like of being a Ferrari driver? What are the pressures like? Ferrari is a different. It's not like our another racing team. It's something else, yeah? When, when I got there in 2002, 
I learned that that was Formula One. I've been in Jaguar before, been in Stuart a little bit. I've been in Jaguar, in Prost. I was, I'm very thankful for the experience that I had with them. But uh, to be honest, I just learned about Formula One when I got Ferrari. And once you are there, it's not just a racing team, a professional racing team. It's all of the, the, the pressure. It's also in a good way. You have maybe the bad pressure to be delivering the results because you must. But at the same time, there is, uh, for example, people used to to talk to me and to give me like a really good feedback. And they didn't even know my name, but I was a, a Ferrari test driver. So you felt that there was something special there. Yeah, that the people really loved the team, the brand, and it was nice to be part of it, of course. Uh, it was also very important to, to work. That's where I can say I learned a lot about motor racing. To work with um, not just the technical part, which was Ross, Ross Brown, uh, Rory Byrne, and other guys, and the engineers, and a lot of good people, but even to work with uh, Jean Todd, for example. Jean is not a, a technical guy. He knows about motor racing, but he's not a technical guy. But the way that they used to manage the, the team, the way they used to work was really, really good, was really strong. And of course, being there with um, Rubens and especially Michael, it was of also uh, the best reference possible as a racing driver. Yeah, So it was really good to, to be there. And looking to the team, what happened since then, I think... Um, Maybe Ferrari lost a little bit the um, the leadership that Jean used to to use there to 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 be as a as a proper leader. Yeah, uh, I, I I worked with uh, Stefano Dominicali as well. He was a really good guy. Uh, I don't know how was the team when he was uh, the the team principal, but after he left, I saw that Ferrari never got uh, the rhythm again as it used to be. Uh, I know a little bit of uh, Arriva Beni because he was Philip Morris when I was there. And he wasn't, uh, from my view, um, a good leader because he was not sympathetic, is the word, is it? He was not uh, a nice guy to, to meet or a nice guy to be involved. He was always very distant from, from us and I never got the understanding why. And to be a team leader, you must be close in a way. You must be uh, followed, yeah? So, and Jean used to do that very well. Ross was also a really good leader, you know, in, a, in the meetings and so on. He was very strong as a, a, a team leader as well. And I think Ferrari doesn't have that anymore, in my opinion. Uh, I feel sorry to see them, for example, losing the championship this year. I was really cheering hoping that they would would get that because even for formula one it's pretty good yeah it's not just because i like ferrari because i was there maybe for a few years um i think for formula one ferrari is is really important so once mercedes has been winning championships for a long time it would be nice to get a ferrari championship as well and to bring Lito on this obviously you follow the championship very closely i imagine you're as frustrated as everyone because kind of as a journalist you're not too worried about who wins but there was this brilliant fight for half the season and it looked like it could go right down to the wire, you know, going one way than the other. But then 
obviously Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton have got it together and just blown Ferrari out of the water. And it is frustrating, isn't it, that this, is, that this has happened? Because regardless of who you're cheering for, if anyone, everyone just wants a good race, don't they? Yes, it, it, I think it was a huge disappointment for, for everybody who's anyway involved with Formula One or motorsport. Uh, but not for what happened, but the way it happened. There was uh, no real fight. Uh, of course, Hamilton, is, uh, he won on merit. He's a real uh, worst champion. Fifth time he's got there. Nobody goes there uh, just for luck. Of course, he's got all the credit for it. But anyway, uh, we didn't expect uh, what happened to Vettel since Hockenheim. You know, that was... I think the lowest point. And from then on, what we saw was Ferrari losing its, uh, how to say, its subjectivity. It's, it's teamwork that Luciano spoke of right now. Uh, it gave us uh, an impression that they got completely lost between them. I really believe that maybe, not maybe, I'm really, I really believe that Sergio Marchione's death was a big part, played a big part in it, because Marchioni was a real leader. He was there all the time. He was the one who called the press to, to tell them things, not only to, to fight, to argument, to have arguments. No, to, to say the way, to tell them the way he saw things, the way he wanted things. It was a real leadership. And now, uh, I myself, at least, I don't get to see it in Ferrari anymore. I see much more that um, that image that people makes of Italian people. It's not true, but it's not also untrue that when they lose the temper and life becomes an opera. And you're allowed to say that because there is some Italian heritage uh, yeah. in, in your past. So. Yes, yes. Cavalcanti is an Italian name. I come from an Italian family. Burci too. And I can say the same, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm Pucci Burci, so really Italian, and I agree with you. Yeah, from yeah. the two sides. <laughs> uh, it's interesting, coming back to that point, Luciano, you made about Eriva Bene's style, and we've seen Vettel make a large number of mistakes. A lot of them have been, I mean, he, he always talks about the Hockenheim mistake as a as a very small mistake, but with a big consequence. And of course, it's the one the one corner with a gravel trap that sucked him in. So it was a tiny mistake, but you know, th- those are the mistakes you know how to make. But do you think it, that's maybe made it harder for him that it hasn't been, been kind of calmed down? Because he's quite an emotional driver and when he's at his best, he's completely under control. But the amount of mistakes Sebastian's made is unusual for a driver of his calibre. We haven't seen this generally in the past, maybe a little bit in the early days, but since he's fully formed. So do you think that's that maybe that environment has, has fed into it? It's not just, oh, Ferrari have been strong and Vettel's made mistakes? No, I think I think so. I think um, I agree with you. It was a really tiny mistake, yeah, which happens. But uh, he wasn't lucky to happen the wrong time, in the wrong place, and yeah, had a big consequence. And from then on, I really think that if you had, for example, from my experience, like someone like Jean Todt would be someone that would give him like the a good feedback and a good, let's say, um, would be there with, with him, you know. I think Veto maybe felt a little bit alone on his own to to fight back from him from his his mistake, and then once you have the pressure. I always say, as a racing driver, if you think, I cannot make a mistake on the next lap. 
or in the next corner, you will make a mistake. Once you think about it, that's it. And I think it happened to him. Although he's a great champion, a really, really good driver, experienced and so on, he's still human. And when you think those uh, things or those fe- have those feelings, it doesn't do you any good. So I think was, yeah, I think he was on his own. And someone like uh, Jean would be th- perhaps perhaps making the difference to put him back on track. Because like you said also, it's not normal to see um, a four-times champion making so many mistakes. Eh? And like silly mistakes sometimes, not a, a big mistake or so on. Like silly mistakes, it's not um, expected from a, a driver of his caliber. I think there's also another component that I don't know uh, how big a role it played, but I think it was uh, inevitably uh a, a part, a big part of it. It was the change of Heikkonen for Leclerc. It was something that divided the team. There were two factions, one pro Heikkonen, another pro Leclerc. And the Leclerc one was because he was an heritage from, from Sergio Marchione. So uh, there was a, the need to honor Marchione's uh, this decision and so many times we saw during qualifying uh, Fettel having driving and having arguments or questions to his engineers to the people who was on the radio with him and it was not normal as Luciano was just uh, saying if a driver has to think about the next corner he will for sure make a mistake. Maybe he wouldn't make a mistake the next corner, but I think it's not conceivable. A driver who's qualifying and who's qualifying for Ferrari having arguments, are you sure? And making this kind of question to the engineer. So he had to drive and he also also had to organize a team. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a fairly clear, clear problem. And I guess when it is a team like Ferrari and again, Luciano, you having worked there will know it that, Ferrari is so big, isn't it? That if that if you carry that whole team on your shoulders, and I think that's kind of what you were saying about maybe he was left left alone, you can end up just being crushed under the under the weight of expectation. Definitely, definitely, because it's a huge pressure. Like I said, even when I described before, like a good a good pressure is when when you see the reaction from people, not just from the press, but from the tifosi. Uh, you you receive that in a good way. But that becomes a pressure because Jesus, you know, if I make a mistake, they love this so much. They 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 are expecting so much from me that if I make a mistake, it's going to be huge. So yeah, you kind of uh, you can be trunked uh, quite easily, and unfortunately, that happened to him. So that's why you need someone from the team uh, with um, the position to to div- to. To be part of that uh, shoulder to hold all this pressure, yeah, because if you leave if you leave a driver alone, he won't deal with it. Even from the Michael Michael's days, I mean, Michael was kind of unbeatable in those days, yeah, when I was there. But I remember Jean was really close to him, and Michael wasn't the strongest guy, as everybody thinks. Uh, he was also emotional some sometimes, and and I always remember Jean to be quite close to him. Ross was also really close to him. So he got the the support he needed. He wasn't there on his own driving like he used to drive because, of course, he was 
brilliance as a racing driver, but he needed also the support. And I think, looking from the outside, knowing a little bit what I know from Arvio Baene, I don't think Vettel got the same support as he needed. That's a very interesting comment you make about the Schumacher comparison, because it's always, with the racing team, it's kind of a, a circle, isn't it? The driver feeds into the team, the team feeds into the driver, and it, together you should be able to get very strong. Because even in that period you were at Ferrari, 2002 and 2004 were probably the two most dominant seasons of that period. But 2003 was was a tough season. I imagine there was a lot of a lot of very intense work going on there as the as a battle kind of swung and obviously went down to the wire against uh, Kimi Raikkonen. So I guess maybe that's an example of where in that period that strength really allowed the team to get through. Definitely. I remember in 2003... Um... Even Montezemolo uh, gave gave myself a lot of pressure from uh, saying, you know, I think I think um, we didn't do well in in Monaco in that year in qualify, and was down to the tires as well. And I was testing for Bridgestone. I was maybe the main uh, test driver for Bridgestone, and for sure in Monaco, Michelin was much faster. Yeah, and they were on pole and they were like in front easily. And I remember Montsemel giving me like a kind of a hard time, you know, like you guys must do better. You should do better than this. And so the pressure was there, but they were, let's say, giving this pressure in a good way. At the same time, they was uh, giving me this feedback, which was a hard one to take. He was also giving the support, the necessary support to be um, testing in a better way. You know, I was having then meetings with uh, Ross or Jean, uh, thinking what we had to change. We ha- we even had changed the system from Bridgestone because as a Japanese company, the, there is a huge difference in terms of how they work yeah, between Europeans and Japanese people. So we changed a lot of uh, their um, system in terms of working, in terms of uh, communication. Um we had more uh, freedom to do things at the track, like b- because maybe in the beginning uh, to do to change maybe one psi on the pressure, you had to speak to Japan, and sometimes that was overnight, so you had to ch- wait for the next day. So we we got rid of it. So it was part of the pressure, but Ferrari used to react quite well in those days. Uh, like I said, it was Montezemolo, it was Jean Ross. Rory Byrne, and even uh, Michael was part of this uh, structure. So it was different. Uh, the pressure was there in a big way, but he always had the support to deliver and to do better. Well, some fascinating uh, insight into Ferrari there. We should uh, move on to another topic I wanted to ask you about. There's a lot of talk nowadays in Formula 1 about safety. Uh, we have the halo this year, lots of changes. Obviously, you're a driver who, in your short Formula 1 career, you had a couple of, of, of big accidents, one very spectacular, but uh, Hockenheim, but not too bad one much more serious at, at spa that that kind of ended your f1 racing career um, i mean how, how do you feel about the the safety progression that's been made since then the cars are a lot safer but there's still some drivers who aren't keen on things like the halo etc um i mean do you feel that's all that's positive particularly with the experience uh, you've had it's it's uh, i was i was gonna say it's funny but it's not funny of course but it's i mean sometimes uh, i see that is part of the human being uh Things bad things must happen to have the uh, the attitude to make it better. For example, in, in terms of uh, safety, 
I can say I, 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 I only survived in Spa, which was a huge crash. When I crashed into the wall, it was 270. I had no brakes, yeah, so I went straight to the wall. And it was like 111 G on the impact, which was like a, a number that I never heard before. And uh, I only survived because, unfortunately, a few years ago, Senna died in, in, in Imola. If it wasn't Senna's death, I wouldn't have survived as well because Formula 1 became much better in terms of uh, safety with uh, the loss of Senna. Yeah? So things have to happen, uh, unfortunately. Um, my accident was a really good one, like I said, ended my F1 career. From that accident, some things changed. For example, you can see from then on, all the tire walls have the, the kind of blanket on top of it because my car was underneath the tires. So now, since then, you don't have that anymore. Uh, the helmet, my, my helmet was broken in the front because we used to have a hole on it for the drinking bottle or for the radio. Since then, uh, holes in the helmets are not allowed anymore. So, you know, things start to change. They always make it something better from a bad experience like, like I had. And I think the, the Formula 1 is safe enough, in my opinion. For the Halo, for example, I don't like it. And I say that as a racing driver. Uh, I think the risk is part of the sport. Uh, we cannot make uh, it um, with no risk at all. I think even for who's in the outside, the risk is part of the game. You know, you, you, you are, you are um, uh, cheering for those drivers. You are like uh, having them as an idol because you know that they are pretty good and they take some risks that are really not for any kind of human being. So uh, making it like a bulletproof, it's not uh, the ideal for me. I don't like the halo. I don't think it's necessary. I, and you say, wow, my, maybe someone one day is going to get hurt from it or m might die from it. I said, well, if if you don't want that to happen, let's make a, a speed limit of 160 kilometers per hour, 100 miles per hour maximum. So once you are going over 180 miles per hour, you are taking the risk anyway. So uh, I think from one safe enough and I hope they don't try to make uh, a bulletproof because that's not part of the show. I think uh, motor racing must be a bit dangerous. I don't want to see anyone getting hurt. Of course, I don't want to see uh, anyone dying like we had the last one, Bianchi, yeah, was the last one, which was horrible. But, uh, you know, it is a bit dangerous. It must be like that. The Hockenheim one, when you were launched, it was spectacular, but it was kind of a normal accident. But the Spa one, the Spa one wasn't. And I think... Let me, let me tell you something. That's I can say that that's funny from the inside because the Hockenheim one, I didn't see anything. I just when I saw there was a red car in front of me and I just like uh, start to fly, yeah. But it was like really smooth once I I took off. It was really smooth, and then everything slows down. Yeah, I was able to think a lot while I was upside down, and I was thinking, um, I think there's gonna be a red flag. So I will have the chance to go back to the pits and get the spare car because we used <laughs> to have a spare car. And that's what happened. There was a red flag. I went back to the pits. So uh, inside the car sometimes you feel really safe. You know, it's not about courage. It's just because you feel it. But then on the spa one, I, lucky enough, I don't remember anything because for sure that wasn't a good one. 
every time that I see the accents, even nowadays, I think, well, this guy is not going to be able to survive this one because it looks really bad. So, but that's it, yeah. It, it yeah, and, and the feeling was exactly this, because you know at that, at that part of the track, they were full speed, and you didn't see any uh, brakes, you didn't see the car slow down, and that, that huge tire wall falling on him, uh, it was a bad moment for all of us, because you see that, you know, of course. I agree, I fully agree with Luciano when he says that danger is part of the game, I think it is, it's part of the... Uh, image of the gladiator, uh, of the man who faces, not the average man, the man who can face and survive dangers. But when you see things like that happening, you say, well, Halo is a good thing. You know, it's a necessary thing. Uh, it was, it was, it always is a bad moment. Because anyway, who's there in that car is someone that, or you know from, from, your work, or you know, I know Luciano since he was a car driver, you know, and so it's it's a moment of, of agony, not not good at all. But I fully agree with him; it's part of the game. And actually, while we're, while we're talking about about this era, it's interesting, Luciano, to get your view on your Formula One race career because you had a slightly bizarre <laughs> stint in Formula One. Obviously, initially tester for Stewart, then tester for Jaguar. You had the one-off. Uh, in 2000, it would have been when Eddie Irvin was out in Austria, did well, got the drive for the next year. And then I know a lot changed at Jaguar over that period. And then and then suddenly, I think it was after four races, you were, you were out before you... So, I mean, what, what was that situation like? It's unusual for a driver to be in that situation. You get the drive and then suddenly you're out of favour. I guess in some ways you could compare it just in terms of circumstances today to someone like Brendan Hartley very early in the season. He Red Bull were trying to replace him at, uh, at Toro Rosso, but clearly you, for whatever reason, you weren't seen to fit. And I guess you knew that from from the very start of the season. Of course, you ended up washing up at uh, Prost, which wasn't a great place to be. But um, what, what was that whole experience like? Yeah, it was really. I, I always say that uh, I was living my dream because I was dreaming since starting to be in Formula One, and once I got there, I started to live a nightmare because it, it happened. And it was, you have to be lucky as well, yeah? Uh, of course, to be in Formula 1, to get Formula 1, you must be a lucky guy. You cannot be unlucky. But once I got there, I didn't have the luck on my side because as soon as I was signed, there was a kind of a battle between myself and Frankiti for the drive. And we done a testing spa of three days of testing. And Dario didn't do it well at all because it was tough for him, yeah? Coming from IndyCar with no experience, I was there really... Well, I knew everything. I knew the track. I knew the car. And in the end of the day, in the end of the test, I was two, three seconds faster than him. But not his fault. He he wasn't ready for it. He didn't have a proper chance. And and then they changed their mind and signed myself. But that was done under new wrestlers' uh, management. And he was really close to Jackie. So they were they were behind me. They were really giving me. And of course, you. Driven for, for, for Stuart. the Stewart team exactly. in Formula so, 3, so there's a long link there. Jackie was really important in my career. I, I, I still have his, him as a friend. I really appreciate Jackie. So so once I, I was signed, there was new roster, Jackie, so everything was good to go, yeah? And that was maybe in September of 2000, yeah? 
And a few months later, I think uh, October or November, Neil decided to go back to America, stop working, and that's when uh, Bobby Rahal came to the team with no idea what was Formula One about. And I don't know exactly what happened, but um, for sure he was trying to get rid of um, Jackie's people. And that wasn't just about myself. It was uh, Gary Anderson. Of course, Gary Anderson works for Autosports. I know Gary well. Exactly. He's, Gary he's was there, so, so he can tell. It was really bad the way that Bobby came to the team, like getting rid of people like uh, Gary. Uh, I remember uh, Rob Armstrong, which was important for the team. I remember Andy Miller was someone important to the team. He started to sack people without uh, waiting maybe for the season to start to get an idea, well, they are good people or not. So if they are not good, I will sack them. That's that's way, but that's okay. But he didn't even start, uh, um, wait for the, the start of the season to make those decisions. And for my surprise, I was doing well in testing. Uh, it was myself and Eddie. I was doing well. It was really strange time because it was, uh, Michelin was coming back to Formula 1 and uh, we didn't have um, many tires to test. But when I was testing with the same compound as Eddie, I was always on the pace, okay? So I was doing well. But after maybe one month of testing, it was like a February before the, the, the beginning of the season, um, Bobby... Uh, signed Pedro de la Rosa for three years. And Pedro was uh, nowhere at the time. He was trying to test for Prost. He didn't have a job. I like Pedro quite a lot. He's a really, really good driver. But at the moment, he didn't have any, anything in his hands. It was like uh, out of, uh, of uh, position in Formula 1. And even so, Bobby signed him for three years, which I know was a, a deal between him and and his uh, manager, uh, Creighton Brown. Creighton Brown, no... Um, Jacoby. Yeah, Jacoby. Julian Jacoby. Jacoby. Thanks, Julian Jacoby, exactly. So they signed that. And once I, 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 I knew, I said, Jesus Christ, I don't have a job anymore because the season didn't start yet. They didn't give me the chance to see if I'm doing well or not because maybe after three, four races, if Bobby thought, oh, this driver is not good enough, then okay, I will sign someone else. But no, the season was still in February. So I said, well, my time is going to be hard here because I don't have a job for next year anymore before even having the chance to prove it. So I, I think they will sack me during the year, like they done with uh, all those guys from Jackie. So after two races, uh, I wasn't doing any bad, but of course I was feeling quite bad already. I was uh, totally lost uh, and on my own trying to, to do something. But I was feeling really bad. And uh, that's when Pedro Denise came to me saying, well, I'm having a deal with a Prost. I'm going to be his partner at the team. And we are trying to make like a Brazilian team for next year, which would be 2002, bringing Brazilian sponsorship. And yourself would be one of the drivers if you want. And a new guy coming called Felipe Massa. I said, well... It's better for myself to try to hold, to get hold of uh, a contract for next year. Even though I knew that Prost at the time was not a good car, I said maybe for the future I have a chance to to do something because in Jaguars I, I can see that I have no space anymore. And then I accepted the the invite, but not. And then said, well, if you are free, we can do that for 
Barcelona because we, we have a contract with, with Mazzacani and if he doesn't do well for four races, we can sack him, which happened. So that's why I changed teams, which at the, at the time wasn't good because the car was, the Prost car was really, really bad to drive. But it was like a, a long-term thinking of my side. Anyway, unfortunately, the team was uh, lacking money a lot. Then Denise and Prost didn't get uh, <laughs> well in terms of business. And the accidents that I had was also part of it. I'm sure I was trying to, to do more than I should. Once in Spa, for example, I was trying to overtake uh, Eddie Irvine somewhere where you shouldn't try to overtake. So that's the kind of pressure they make stupid mistakes because you just have too much pressure. So that why, that's why I said it was like a nightmare because I got um, um, stabbed in the back in Jaguar, in my opinion. I had to make a change. The change didn't work. I got the accidents. So, you know, it's part of life and you, you cannot be lucky for for the whole time in your life. And unfortunately, in this, that year, I was really lucky, I think. There's a chance here, Lito, for you to pass judgment on Luciano. I mean, what what do you make of Luciano as a driver? Did Formula One not see the best of him? Obviously, uh, you were never able to score a point in Formula One. I think your best finish was eighth. Didn't have the best machinery, so um, <laughs> not really your fault. But, I mean, how good a driver do you think Luciano was? You'd have known him from the early days when he was racing in Brazil and then going over to Europe. So do you think he's someone who could have achieved a lot more in Formula One given the, the right opportunities? Oh, I don't have a doubt about it because uh, you don't reach Formula One because you're pretty, because you're lucky. You've got to conquer this. It's a thing that you must achieve. Someone, anyone who gets there is someone who's uh, who's worth to be there. And uh, I followed his, his career since the very beginning and I always saw a very committed guy, a guy that was there to make it to Formula One. But when you get get to Formula One, uh, things change a lot. You're not driving anymore a uh, uh, single uh, single brand category. You're driving. Each one has a different car, and if you don't have the car, you lost. And I really don't know. Uh, if Luciano would have a, a better car, I think he would have if uh, Stewart uh, went on being Stewart, you know. But the wrong things started when Ford brought a guy from another category, thinking that all the cars have four wheels, an engine, and gearbox, and so Bobby Rahal is going to do it. Right, and of course he did not. And then, well, he stayed after that. He stayed two years, two, three years, three years as a test driver for Ferrari. I think it, it's, it's, it speaks a lot about his possibilities if he had the right chance. So you said some nice things about you, so that's, a, that's always very positive. You, could, some, you never know how people will respond. They could go, no, he was never good enough. But, uh, but no, it's positive. But we should also say that you know, look at what you did in the junior categories. Obviously, the famous thing is, you know, you finished ahead of Jensen Button in British Formula 3 in, in 99. I think he was in his first season. You were in your second season of British F3, if memory serves. Mark Hines won the championship. You had a, a good battle there. So, you know, you were a driver with a good reputation, very much on the up. And it, it, it 
like you said, it's amazing that everything seemed to go great until the point you got you got the full time F one drive, and then and then it's gone. I mean, is it hard to look back on something like that? I guess it's a long time ago now, so you, you kind of reconcile to it. Or is there part of you that looks back and says, "Well, that's it's a shame that you couldn't show what you were capable of." Uh, in a way, it's a shame, but at the same time, I I I, I don't regret regret anything that I done. Uh, I, I I'm very thankful for for what happened to my to my career because I started racing when I was 16, which is very late, really really late. I didn't realize it was that late. Yeah, really late. So it wasn't my father or my uncle or someone that took me to the track. I was I had to grow up and do, do on my own. So I never expected to be. I have uh, like a, try to make it short. For example, in '91 was the first time I went to Interlagos to watch a Grand Prix, 91, when Senna won the Grand Prix, yeah? And I remember I was in the, on Friday, free practice, and the first car that left the, the pits was Jean Alizy on the Ferrari with a V12 engine. And once they crossed in front of me in the, the main street, yeah? Once I saw the car going by with that noise and so on, I was really, really emotional, like, Jesus Christ, you know? I'm seeing like 100 meters in front of me a Ferrari, Jean Lizzy, and Jesus, I, I don't believe it. You know, I'm so close to them. How how can yeah? I, it was like a a moment that I was really really emotional about it. And 10 years later, exactly 10 years later, I'm driving for Prost besides Jean, so he was my teammate. And one one year later, uh, Ferrari hired myself as a test driver. So. If you think about where I was and what I was able to achieve, I have to be very thankful. Of course, I wanted to do a lot more in Formula 1. I think if I had the chance, I don't think I was a, a driver to be a world champion like you see Alonso or Hamilton or those guys, you know. I I had the speed. I had, I agree with Lito, the, my, my best thing as a racing dri driver was my commitment. I was very committed for sure. But um, I didn't judge myself as a, someone special that could have be a world champion and so on. But I could do well, no doubt. So I hoped I could do better. But at the same time, I, I, I'm very thankful. I, from where, where I started and the way I, I got Formula 1, it was, was a pleasure. So no problems with it. It's interesting because I, I was thinking about before this, uh, kind of through your career, Phases and I thought, well, it's Ferrari, and then obviously you did stock cars. And I, I can't because you didn't really do anything else kind of internationally after that. Obviously, a lot of drivers were doing going to America, you know, sports cars wasn't in as good as good a shape as it is now as, as it went on to be a few years later, but there were still sometimes opportunities. Did you, did you kind of attempt to go elsewhere, or was it a feeling of no, it's time to go back to, to Brazil and, and stock cars, which is a championship that's not that well known in Europe, but a fantastically competitive championship? Was, was that the obvious thing to do? The thing is, after the, the accident that I had in, in Spa, I knew that I, I wouldn't have a second chance, for example, to go to America to race in Indy. No way for me, you know. I said I think was lucky enough once, and I cannot go racing novos and so on. I think I won't have a second chance. So uh, we should say because you had a pretty serious concussion after that, yeah, as well thing. And if you do that, brain bleeding too so many on. times. Oh yeah. So I, I I said to myself, you know, don't think about uh, racing novos. Of course, I, I had the chance. I was quite close to Ford and so on. I was close to 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 people that I could 
try something in America. But I, I thought it was better to to get a bit easy in this side. I could have stayed in Europe. There was the DTM and other series that I could have tried at least. But at the same time, I, I, I wanted to go back, to come back home. Not just for my family, but uh, it was like eight years living in Europe. The accident was a big part of it. So I, I was missing a bit to be back home. And I, I knew once I left Formula 1, I, had really, I was really conscious that you said, okay, you had your chance as a driver. You can you can keep racing, but your professional career, it's kind of over. I came back to Brazil, racing like a professional driver, making money and so on. But I, but I knew that my my time was in the end of Formula One. So I said, well, I, if I go back home, I want to keep racing, but I will start to do my own business. I want to be something else as a uh, after a racing driver because this will end sometime, you know. So. That's when I started to work with uh, TV Global, which was something that I done for my. No one invited me. I, I went to them, made a proposal, and we started working. So it has been quite good for me. And I have some other business that I've been working with since then. So um, I can have I can have a life apart from Formula One. I can have a life apart from motorsport. Like I said, I'm really happy with it. I still enjoy it, but I know that I do. I must do something else because that's not just my my own thing in life you know i think that's good clear thinking some drivers obviously struggle with that transition um one thing that occurs lito is luciano was part of a conveyor belt of, of brazilian drivers we were so used to these guys turning up obviously you first came over to uk formula voxel junior formula voxel you one and then formula three and there was just always these brazilian guys coming through and it's like okay Bertie, he's the next good one yeah sure enough and it was just what you expected and yet this this sequence of Brazilian drivers has, has dried up a bit. So, Lito, what, why is this? Have, uh, have Brazilians forgotten how to drive? Yes, it's. <laughs> it's. I think it's kind of... I, I really don't know. I have an opinion, but I don't know how how right can it be. Of, of course, there's a, a huge role being played by a financial crisis, of course. But uh, anyway, I think that it's the kids are missing a hero to mirror at. Like uh, uh, we had first uh, Emerson Fittipaldi, and that was the one that was the real pioneer because he didn't have someone to mirror at. He was he went in a in a crazy move, but it worked all right. And then uh, we had Nelson Piquet. It was already a, a hero, was someone that had grown up in Brazilian single-seater series. It was Super Vig, that was hugely popular here. And then we had Senna, and the, the kids uh, at those days, like Luciano, like everybody, were early Sundays on the TV waiting for Senna's victory, you know? And then they wanted to be the new Senna, the new Piquet, the new Emerson. Now they don't have this kind of example. And there's also uh, another reason, because Stock Car here is a very uh, good series for some drivers, for the real pros that are racing. They can make a very good money. They have very good uh, racing. They have live TV. They are popular. You know, 
And the kids look at Formula One and say, well, nobody pass nobody. If you're not racing for Ferrari, if you're not racing for Red Bull, if you're not racing for Mercedes, you're going to win nothing. So let's take a look at touring cars. Let's, let's take a look for stock car. You, say, you know, it's, it's not internationally known, but it's spectacular. It's a real, real good series. But there are, it, it, at the moment, it's going through a time. That's the same as Formula One. You have three or four teams to, to have a real chance to win. If not, they are starting to see this. And so the kids that are doing cars now are starting to go back to Europe. We have a real good generation now uh, in cars racing in Europe. You have uh, drivers that have mm, uh, upgraded to Formula 4. Caio uh, Collet, that was the French Formula 4 champion. Uh, Enzo Fittipaldi, that's not real uh, a Brazilian product. He, he was born and grown in USA, but he has Brazilian roots, and he has a, a Brazilian manager, his grandfather, Emerson Fittipaldi. But you have Gianluca Petekov, you have Filipe Drogovic doing very, very well in Euro Formula 3. Uh, you have some kids that are seeing that, well, maybe stock car is not so different from motorsport everywhere. There are dominating teams, and so they start to go to think back of Formula One. No, it makes sense. It's, and it's interesting, the point you make about the, the nature of Formula One at the moment and the, and the appeal of it. And I guess, Luciano, you may have some views on this. Because if you look at, let's say, I mean, well, Jaguar is, is Red Bull. It's the same company obviously changed has changed hands, but the complexities of the cars, etc., makes it very difficult to follow. Everyone knows these these problems there. I mean, by comparison, a two thousand and one Jaguar looks quite simple when you look at the front wing, even though it was a very cut, cutting edge car. I mean, do you, do you have any particular feeling on the direction Formula One should go? This is what everybody's asking at the moment. What's what should the future be? There are some aero changes that should make things work better, but. No, it doesn't always seem to be getting to the heart of the problem for uh, It's really for me. difficult, yeah. It's really difficult. And people say, well, nowadays you have only two, three teams. I said, well, you always had that in Formula 1. Since the 70s, I know, I started to, to watch Formula 1 uh, on 88. I started to follow Senna. But then, of course, you know, a few years ago, I started to look, uh, look back on the 70s. And it, it was the same problem. Of course, the cars were easier to to overtake each other and so on, but you had two, three teams like to win races, yeah, or to to fight for the championship. So that that has been from one, in my opinion, for always, yeah, has been always like that. And to make racing better, it is quite difficult. Um, the cars are super fast, and to to be to make the car as fast as that, you must have downforce in the car. So to get rid of it. It's quite difficult. Uh, I, I, I know, and everybody knows that doesn't make any sense to make the Formula One cars like they are in those last two seasons because they are, have huge downforce. I was last year in Brazil watching. There is a call a corner called Laranjinha, which uh, is the one, corner. which is the uphill, really, really nice corner, and it's like medium speed, medium to high speed. And I was on the outside looking at the cars last year, and I was amazed. Like it, was, it felt like the cars were on rails, yeah? Uh, the amount of speed that they are able to carry is, like, amazing. 
but it doesn't make any sense because let's say I have the eyes for it. I, I look at the cars and said, Jesus Christ, how fast is it? But for someone else that doesn't understand, understand, they don't realize how fast it's going. So it doesn't make anything interesting for them. And then, of course, to be able to be that fast is because they have a huge downforce. That is the, the biggest problem for overtaking. So I don't know why they've done that. And those guys... On the, on they got just obsessed about the, the lap time gain. That became the, yeah, the fix-all, which, yeah, which even as it was happening, people knew that wouldn't, wouldn't work. Even those involved, it's, it's, it was a curious move. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I, I would say, I'm always going to say, you know, those guys, they are really clever. Those guys in Formula 1, they, they know about the job. They know about the, the sport, but uh, sometimes they they make mistakes, and that's that was a huge mistake. Uh, I don't know if the next change is going to be enough to make Formula One better. I hope so. I really hope so. They are always trying to make the teams more even, but like Lito said, now even in Stock Car in Brazil, which is a really really small budget compared to Formula One, you you have the same problems. You have, you know, the cars are kind of all the same. They are manufacturer, uh, only one manufacturer, but you still have difference in budget between the teams. You have a difference difference on people working in the team, the level of uh, engineering. So it's always a problem. So um, it's difficult to make Formula One even. I hope they they make it better. But uh, to get rid of the the problem completely, I think it's quite impossible. No, I think you're absolutely right. There are some fundamental problems. I guess lastly, Lito was fairly optimistic about the Brazilian drivers. Did it make you a bit sad to see no Brazilian drivers on the grid? And that because we're so used to Brazil, well, from from afar anyway. It seems Brazil really gets behind its star drivers. Had that sequence of greats, and then Rubens Barrichello, Felipe Massa had wins. Felipe Massa came very close, but they kind of seem to a bit be considered as as not being in the same class understandably so as the greats before so that that seems to have played a part as well but do you think that can be brought back i think it can but i tell you that um i can see that happening maybe f- 10 years ago i was already talking about it like oh sooner or later we're gonna be with no brazilian driver on the grid and i've been talking about it um in my opinion, the problem is uh, Brazilian people are really talented to get um, them to make things work when you don't have maybe the resources and so on. The Brazilian people, they have like, the ability to make things happen anyway, okay? But uh, maybe f- 10 years ago, a bit more, the European drivers have been developed in a different way. You have academies, for example the French Federation Academy, or maybe you have similar things in England. You have the ones from Red Bull. You have the one maybe from Ferrari, from Mercedes. They have been developing the, the drivers since karting in a different way, while Brazil is still in the old days manner. So in the old days, like you said about Emerson, Piquet, Senna, they were really talented. Uh, maybe on the driving, like Senna, maybe on the uh, technical approach as uh, Nelson, maybe on the overall as Emerson, yeah. So they were able to make them happening, maybe with a, maybe coming from Brazil. But nowadays, when a Brazilian driver gets there, he's not in the same level as the the European drivers. He gets to Formula Three or to Formula Renault or whatever, 
he's not in the same level. Technically, not just about driving the car, but he's driving the car, uh, working with the data, the physical uh, uh, aspect as well. Uh, I mean, he's not prepared enough. So he gets there and he's not, for example, myself. I got to, to Europe in 96 and I won my first race in Formula Vauxhall in Donington. And that was really important because once I won that race, we had on the grid Daniel Weldon, Andrew Kirkaldi, Tim Allen, people like drivers that people know, knew about them. So once I got uh, I, I got the win in the first race, people started to pay attention. Like, who is this guy? Even Jackie and his team start to pay attention. So that's really important. But nowadays, the Brazilian driver gets there. He's not well prepared. And he takes time to to be in the same level. And then you're not shiny anymore sometimes. So I think that's the main problem, in my opinion. Yeah. We are trying to react a little bit for it. Uh, for example, Lito mentioned Caio uh, Collet, which I, I, from what I heard, he's a really good driver. He won the Formula 4 championship in France. Nicolas Todd got him already, so maybe he's one guy that will have a really good chance. But we don't have the 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 same chance as a Brazilian driver as we had in the past, in my opinion. Uh, I would complete uh, Luciano's speech talking about the other side. There's a, a kid called Felipe Drugovic. He was... Uh, he could have won Formula 4, German Formula 4, uh, two years ago. Oh, no, l last year. But his car broke, and I think he, in the last, the last event. And so he was third. And then he went to Euro Formula 3, and he won 14 out of 16 races. It's okay. His team was by far the best, RP, the Italian RP Motorsports. But anyway, he had an opposition from a, a, I don't, a, a Dutch guy, I don't remember his name, from a good team, DriveX. Anyway, whoever wins... 14 out of 16 races has got it, has got something different. And now he's looking for a category to race. But if he goes to GP3, the best teams are already taken close by the academies. These academies are very good to the one who's inside there. But it's very bad to motorsport, you know. And some aren't even... Oh, I would say some of them have surnames but not names, you know. And these guys are fulfilling the good teams and are closing the doors for other guys. So where where is going to Felipe drive uh, next season? His manager, not quite a manager, but a, a friend, Carlos Lua Mauro, the one who was manager or kind of managing uh, Nelson Piquet when he went from Brazil to Europe and they stayed together for more than 10 years. And in Lua uh, takes a look at him, gives him some uh, helping hand, and he said, we still didn't find the right place for him. It's not right. It's, uh, it's always a battle for young drivers, isn't it? And I, but I think, speaking from a European perspective, we all like seeing Brazilian drivers doing well in Formula 1, so it's not just uh, Brazil who wants to, to see drivers. So, uh, well, we could talk about this all, all day, but uh, no, it's been great to have your insight. So thank you, Lito Cavalcanti and Luciano Botti. I do have to say, Luciano, do you ever tell people, oh, that Jensen Button, 
I, I beat him in F3. Are you ever tempted just to drop that into conversation? Uh, no, no, not in this way. I, I when I saw, I was really happy to see him winning the the championship. We were fighting in '99, but in a good way. I never had a problem with Jensen. I, I I knew that he was a special driver. Since he got there, he was on his first year. And he was really doing well since then. But he always, we always had a really good time together. Uh, people ask already, ah, can you can you beat him? I said, well, I done it in the past, so yeah, I could. But uh, I think Jensen was able to to develop his career, improving a lot as a racing driver. Okay, I I was I think he was in a in a level that I didn't expect him to be there. Like uh, he was able to to be a real. When he won the championship, they had the best car by far. But uh, I think he was a real champion. So, yeah, I, I could be fighting with him for sure. But um, So you could have been champion. <laughs> well, I could be fighting with him. But, uh, That's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. I should have been three times champion. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I was happy to see him. I, he, he deserved that. Um, yeah. But we lost the championship to Mark Hines. Eh? Yeah. So... In a way, it was the problem. I was fighting so much Jensen, and we left Mark a little bit alone, and he got the the best team of the time, which was Manor, the first time in, in Formula Three. And John Booth is really good. Yeah, he won everything that he done in the base formulas, and he, they they kicked our ass. So yeah, that was. That was a good time anyway. I had to give you the chance to uh, to make that uh, boast. It's not really boasting, but we thought we'd drag it out of you. But yeah, thank you very much for, for joining us. So can I suggest to everyone, check out autosport.com, all the news on the latest in Formula 1 on the whole world of motorsport, a plus subscriber area, where for a small fee you can read allegedly the world's best motorsport journalists, features, columns, all sorts of opinions. You can even read occasionally uh, some uh, thoughts from myself. Check out sister titles, F1 Racing Magazine, out monthly, and motorsport.com. And if you fancy a flutter, download the Pit Stop Betting app. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The world is waiting, waiting for new thinking. 
for bold ideas that embrace a globally connected community, working together to create a better future for all. And that future, it can be found here at UC Riverside. Bold hearts, brilliant minds. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.